All right, so we will go ahead and get started here. I will open us up in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us so great a salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you have united us to him and that in that union we have the great benefits of his death on the cross and his resurrection. We thank you that you have united us to Christ such that we have died with him and have been raised again with him. Lord, we do pray that you would bless us this morning as we come to look yet again at baptism. And we do pray that you would be with us as we seek to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we return once again to the nature of baptism as addressed in the Orthodox Catechism of Hercules Collins. In this question, the author spends a great deal of space addressing the question of how we are to consider the argument that infant children of believers are to be baptized just as infant children of Abraham were circumcised. So he goes on for four pages in the edition that we have uh, just answering this question. So I want to focus on this question this morning. I've printed out the whole question in your handout, so we'll go through it together. But he divides it into several arguments. So we'll go ahead and, and start reading. Question 73. Since some say that the infants of believers are in the covenant of grace with their parents, why may they not be baptized under the gospel, just as Abraham's infant seed was circumcised under the law? Answer, by asserting that the infants of believers are in the covenant of grace, they must either mean of the covenant of grace absolutely considered, and if so, then there is no total and final apostasy of any infant seed of believers from the covenant, but all must be saved then. And here he references Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40, and John 10, 28. Or they must mean conditionally that then when they come to years of maturity, they by true faith, love, and holiness of life, taking hold of God's covenant of grace, shall have the privileges of it. If this is their meaning, then what spiritual privilege does the infant seed of believers have more than the infant seed of unbelievers? If they live also to years of maturity and by true faith and love take hold of God's covenant. Furthermore, would not the seal of the covenant belong as much to the children of unbelievers as to the children of believers? Yes, since the infant seed of the unbeliever sometimes comes to embrace God's covenant and the infant seed of the believer does not, as often this is seen to the sorrow of many godly parents. And here he references Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8, John 3, 16, and Acts 10, verses 34 through 35. So here's his first argument here. If the infant children of believers are in the covenant of grace, then they're in it in one of two ways. Either absolutely, in which case all will be saved, 
or conditionally, in which case they will have the privileges of the covenant of grace if they believe. However, if they're in the covenant of grace only conditionally, then that means that they have no greater privilege than the children of unbelievers. For the same promises of salvation apply to them if they believe and trust in Jesus Christ. So let's break this down a bit and start out by looking at these scripture passages. Uh, So the first part, if the infant children of believers are in the covenant of grace, then the first option is that they're in it absolutely, meaning that they are saved. And so he uh, lists Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 40, and John 10, 28 here. Could I get a couple people to look up those two passages for us? Yes, sir. I'm sorry? Uh, Yeah, uh, Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I'm sorry? Can, yes, ma'am. Great, thank you. And then could someone read for us John 10, 28? Yeah. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my Great, thank you. So what he's saying with both of those is that those who are in the covenant of grace, they absolutely will be saved. That there's no question. There's no nothing that they can do. So if they are in the covenant of grace, absolutely That means they will be saved. And that means that if you hold to that position, you believe that children of believers will be saved. Absolutely. They are a part of God's covenant. And the the point he's making here is that if you're saying that, that is a very difficult position to hold. That all children of believers are saved. No exceptions. That's, that's very difficult because, and, and he explains, he says, that sometimes the unbeliever comes to embrace God's covenant and the infant seed of the believer does not, as is seen to the sorrow of many godly parents. This is something that just from sheer observation is, seems to be very contradictory to the truth. We know of many children of believers who sadly do not walk with the Lord and Uh, flee from him. But if that is not true, then that means that they are in the covenant conditionally, meaning that they will be part of God's people if they believe and have faith in Christ. And then they will receive salvation and be part of the covenant of grace. But his point here is that, look, if that is true, that's given to everyone. That promise is for everyone who believes not just for children of believers, but it's, it's true for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Everyone who trusts in Christ is part of his people, not just children of believers. And so that's his point here. It's, it's these two options. It's either you're saying that 
they're either in the covenant of grace, absolutely, or they're in it if they repent and believe in Jesus Christ, which is true for everybody. And so that's, that's basically his, his argument. And he's saying that if that is the case, then they do not have any greater privilege than the children of unbelievers in that sense. Because the promises of salvation apply to them both. And so if I could get someone to read Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. Can you read that? Great. Thank you very much. And then John 3.16, of course, we know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then could someone read for us Acts 10, verses 34 and 35? Yeah, Ethan. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Great, thank you. And so the point with these passages is that, look, there is this promise to everyone, no matter whether your parents are Christians or not, that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will be part of the people of God. And... I would go back again to Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, where John the Baptist is speaking to the Pharisees who are coming to see him and look at his baptism. And he says, Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So that's his first argument. So any questions about that? Anything unclear about that? Okay, so he moves on. And the next he says, suppose all the infant seed of believers are absolutely in the covenant of grace. Yet believers under the gospel ought no more to baptize their infant seed than Lot to circumcise himself or his infant seed if he had males as well as females, although he was related to Abraham, a believer, and in the covenant of grace, since circumcision was limited to Abraham and his immediate family. If the infant seed of believers are absolutely in the covenant of grace, 
we may bring infants to the Lord's table because the same qualifications are required to the due performance of baptism as for the Lord's Supper. And here he lists Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. So could I get someone to read that for us? Acts 2, 41 through 42. Yep, go on. Great, thank you. So his second argument here is really kind of two arguments kind of put together. Uh, and his first argument is that if all the ch- infant children of believers are in the covenant of grace, then there's no need to baptize them because Lot was a believer, and yet he did not receive circumcision. His second argument is that if the infant children of believers are in the covenant of grace, absolutely and thus ultimately saved, then we should not withhold the Lord's Supper from them. And so the first argument here, he's, he's arguing that if it is the case that infant children of believers are in the covenant of grace no matter what, or absolutely, then there's no need to baptize them because Lot did not receive circumcision. And I think his argument here is kind of odd. But his point is that if it is a universal principle that all children of believers are in the covenant of grace, no matter what, then we have this example of Lot, who is a believer, yet do not receive circumcision. Now, I'm not too sure about this argument. It's, it's really hard to follow, and I, I don't think it quite achieves what he's hoping. But I think his second argument here is much stronger. And that is that if the infant children of believers are in the covenant of grace absolutely and thus ultimately saved and that we should not withhold the covenant sign from them, then that would include the Lord's Supper as well. And this one makes total sense given the rationale for infant baptism because the whole argument for infant baptism is that the sign and seal of the covenant of grace should be given to the infant children of believers. Well, there are two signs and seals of the covenant of grace in that understanding. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So if you are giving one to believers on the basis of this argument, then logically you should be giving the other two uh, infants on the basis of this argument. There's no reason for the Pado-Baptists not to affirm Pado-Communion. It is the exact same logic. And yet, happily, most will deny it inconsistently because they know the truth of 1 Corinthians 11, that one must examine themselves before one comes to the table of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 and 29 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And fortunately, most Pado-Baptists recognize the strength of this admonition, this command, 
And so they do not try to give this to their children. Uh, but that's a very inconsistent approach. And uh, <clears throat> those who believe in paedo communion are much more, and there, there are people who do, but they are much more consistent with it uh, than those who do not. And I, I, so I think this is a very good argument. I was actually speaking with someone the other day who was a, a paedo baptist and was very strongly against paedo communion. And uh, someone was saying, he, he was saying, well, there's no example of that in scripture. And I just kind of had to laugh. I was like, there's no example of pedo-baptism in Scripture. But uh, it was fun. But um, everybody kind of see the, the, the point of this argument. If this is the argument for giving one sign to children, then why is it not an argument for giving both? And yet we recognize, based on this very strong admonition to examine oneself, that you should not give both. And so there's an inconsistency there. Uh, this, this first argument about Lot, um, like I say, I don't think it, it accomplishes quite what he's thinking that it does. But I think his point here is, is just that, look, we do have people in the Old Testament, in Scripture, who were believers, and yet they, it was not... They did, did not have um, the sign given to their infant children. I think that's his point there. But then he, he moves, thirdly, to the covenant made with Abraham and the way, different parts of it. And so he, he writes, The covenant made with Abraham had two parts. First, a spiritual component which consisted in God's promising to be a God to Abraham and all his spiritual seed in a peculiar manner, whether they were circumcised or uncircumcised, who believed as Abraham, the father of the faithful, did. And this was signified in God's accepting such as his people, which were not of Abraham's seed, but bought with his money. And this promise was sealed to Abraham by circumcision, that through Jesus Christ, whom Isaac typified, the Gentiles, the uncircumcision which believed, should have their faith counted for righteousness, as Abraham's was before he was circumcised. And so I, I want to look at these, uh, a few of these passages in just a moment. But first of all, his point here is that there are two parts to the covenant of Abraham. He'll note a spiritual part here and a physical or temporal part as well. And so the first thing he notes is that there is a spiritual component, the spiritual aspect to the covenant of Abraham. And it was such that God promised to be a God to Abraham and to all his spiritual seed, which consists of those who had faith in God as Abraham did. And the point here is very clear. There was a strong spiritual component to the covenant made with Abraham. And that is the part that continues throughout the whole covenant of grace. It is that whoever trusts in Jesus Christ is considered to be a child of Abraham. And this is what we read in the Galatians passages. So could someone read for us Galatians 
chapter 3, verse 16, and then verses 28 and 29. Yeah, Desmond. point here is that everyone who trusts in Christ receives spiritual parentage from Abraham in the sense that they are following in the faith which Abraham had. And this is what we see in the Romans 4 passage. So could someone read for us Romans 4 verses 9 through 14? Yes, sir. Yeah, 9 to 14. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Great, thank you. And so his point is that whether circumcised or uncircumcised, this is not what matters. What matters is faith in Jesus Christ. And so the spiritual component comes only to those who have faith. Whether it is Abraham or believers under the new covenant, it comes only to those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ. We are only considered to be children of Abraham if we possess the same faith that he did. And that is the point of the spiritual aspect. That is Paul's point in the Galatians passage. You are not considered a child of Abraham if you are merely one physically. You are considered to be a true child of Abraham if you have the same faith in Jesus Christ that he did. But he also notes that not only is there a spiritual component, but there is also a temporal component. So there's two parts to this covenant of Abraham, a spiritual and a temporal. And so he says, second, this promise consisted of a temporal component. 
Thus God promised Abraham's seed should enjoy the land of Canaan and have plenty of outward blessings. So he sealed this promise by circumcision. Circumcision also distinguished the Jews as being God's people from all the nations of the Gentiles, which as yet were not the seed of Abraham. But when the Gentiles came to believe and by faith became the people of God as well as the Jews, then circumcision, that distinguishing mark, ceased. The distinguishing mark of being the children of God now is faith in Christ and circumcision of the heart. Therefore, whatever pretense there may be to baptize the infants of believers avails nothing, whether there being the seed of believers, their being in the covenant, or that the infant seed of Abraham, a believer, was circumcised. Circumcision was limited also to the family of Abraham, all others, though believers, being excluded. Circumcision was limited also to the eighth day, and whatever pretense might be made, it was not to be done before nor after. It was limited to males, which if baptism came in the room of circumcision and is the seal of the covenant under the gospel, as circumcision was under the law, none but males must be baptized. Just as under the law circumcision had peculiar regulations, so it is under the gospel concerning baptism. These regulations concerning baptism depend purely upon the will of the lawgiver, that prophet to whom we would do well to listen. He determines upon whom, when, and how baptism is to be administered. So this is why I wanted to take this question by itself, because he, he just goes uh, to uh, great depth here. Um, but he, this is the second part here. He's, the main point which he's saying is that the covenant with Abraham included a temporal part, which was that it was tied to the physical seed and the, to the land temporal blessings. It distinguished the physical children of Abraham through circumcision, which thus ceased when the Gentiles were brought in. And the point is that there was a very real temporal, fleshly, this worldly aspect to circumcision. And, <clears throat> and that was tied to the promise of the land and to physical ethnic, racial, and genetic descent from Abraham. It was physical descendants of Abraham who received this promise. It was very physical and therefore temporal. And this aspect is very important because the point which the author is making is that circumcision in and of itself was tied to those temporal blessings and promises which God gave. And this is important because circumcision was not simply a spiritual sign. Oftentimes in discussions between credo-baptists and paedo-baptists, it is acted as if circumcision was a purely spiritual sign. And that was not the case. It was a physical, fleshly sign of promises of physical and fleshly nature, just as much as it included those of spiritual nature. And this is important with respect to baptism because the Pado-Baptist confuses these two points. The sign given to physical children of spiritual descendants of Abraham. That doesn't make sense. And so it's important to note the physical, fleshly, and temporal aspects 
to this promise. And this is what the author really draws out here well. But what the author doesn't delve into quite as much here, although I think he does indicate it, is that these temporal blessings were given to point Abraham and his physical descendants to Jesus Christ. Why is circumcision given? Because it is a bloody sign, a sign of cutting off of the cross where Christ was cut off. Why was the land given? To indicate that there was an inheritance which would come through Jesus Christ and that he would be the heir of all things and would possess the whole earth. And so the point here is that the temporal aspect and nature of these promises have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They no longer remain. So that means that there is no further promise of land that remains for physical descendants of Abraham. It means that there is no further need for circumcision among the physical descendants of Abraham. And this is because Jesus, the true physical seed of Abraham, has come. As Paul says in Galatians 3.16, which we just heard, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. <clears throat> and so for this reason, there's no longer any physical and temporal aspect to the promise. And this means that it is not, therefore, to be given to children according to the flesh, physical, fleshly descent, but only to those who are in Jesus Christ. It is only those who are in Christ, meaning those who have faith in him, who are counted as children of Abraham. This is what it means. All right, so... <clears throat> I want to back up for a minute and just uh, take an overview on that point. The point here is that the covenant with Abraham had two different components, a physical component and a spiritual component. The physical component was for those who were physically descended from Abraham, and it included promises of a physical earthly land, and it included a spiritual component for everyone who trusted in the Lord as Abraham did. But here's the main point. The physical component is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the physical seed of Abraham and who is the heir of all things. And the spiritual component is fulfilled in those who trust in Christ. And so the point is that the entirety of the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his blessings come only to those who believe in Jesus Christ and who are united to him. Does that make sense to everybody? Kind of see the point that I'm making here. So that's where I think he, the author is very helpful here by um, pointing these out. And so that leads us to the question, therefore, who is in the covenant of grace? The author doesn't quite go there with this question, but he, he leads us there with his logic. And we find the answer as we come to the new covenant, the final administration of the covenant of grace. 
Could someone read for us Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13? Yeah, Desmond. Okay, and then that one that that next first. Great, thank you. And so the point here is that the new in the new covenant, which is brought about by the coming of Jesus Christ, all who are in it know the Lord. Everyone who is in the new covenant is a believer in Jesus Christ. All who are in it have the law written on their mind and in their hearts. All who are in it have God as their God. All who are in the new covenant are saved. And this is the glorious truth which we have. Who is in the covenant of grace? Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. Believers are in the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is made up of those who are in Christ. And this is important to note for numerous reasons. It's not those who are of fleshly, physical descent who are in the covenant of grace. It's not the children of believers who are in the covenant of grace. It is believers and believers alone. In other words, if you have been united to Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, then you are in the covenant of grace. And this leads us back to the original meaning of baptism, which I'll come back to in a moment. What we are saying with baptism is that if you have been united with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, then you are in the covenant of grace. You have been united to him in his death to sin, and you have been united to him in his new life, his resurrection of life. And that's what baptism symbolizes. All right, any questions about um, his final points here? And the, qu- the nature of the covenant of grace. Yes, sir. Uh, is it the new covenant? Or is it the same? What did you say? Is what the same? Uh, yes. yes. Um, but, I mean, we, we want to carefully qualify that in terms of the new covenant is the uh, uh, administration 
of the covenant. It's a particular administration. Not that, um, in other words, the, the covenant of grace is from Adam onward. And the, the new covenant is particularly, it, it comes to the most full revelation of the covenant of grace. So um, I'll explain a bit more about it in a second. But the point is that uh, the covenant of grace is built upon God's promise that he will save his people in Jesus Christ. And we see that very first covenant or promise given in Genesis 3.15 to Adam. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that promise grows and grows and grows throughout Scripture until we see the fullest revelation of it in Jesus Christ. Um, so, just to clarify. All right, so there are several objections which... Uh, Baptists have made, and uh, I want to just kind of go through them briefly uh, because you'll probably encounter them if you're interacting with them on any uh, regular basis. Uh, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but you probably will hear these if you're around Baptists very much. The first one is that one can be in the covenant of grace externally, but not internally. In other words, you can be part of the covenant of grace and not be a believer. And you can be in it only externally. So the idea is that you could partake of the blessings of the covenant, such as circumcision and the Passover or baptism in the Lord's Supper, and yet not be a believer in Jesus. And the idea here is that one can be baptized as an infant because they're in the covenant of grace externally. And therefore, warning signs can be given to them to remain in the covenant and partake of it internally. And my response to that is that this is not what we see in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Structurally, there is no place in the church, in the people of God, for unbelievers. Rather, one sees a very vivid demarcation of those who do not trust in Christ as those who are not part of the people of God in any sense. And one of the passages that really pushes this point strongly in my mind is 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. And the point here is that they went out because they weren't part of us. They weren't part of God's covenant at all. It isn't that they were, oh, they were part of the covenant of grace externally, but not internally. No, it's that they weren't part of us at all. They weren't part of the covenant of grace at all. And so I do not see structurally any place for unbelievers as part of the people of God. In the Old Testament, we see types and shadows with the ethnic people of Israel as a mixed body. But in the New Testament, the people of God are clearly revealed to be those who trust in Jesus Christ. If someone is part of the church of Jesus Christ and has been baptized and is not a believer, then they are revealed to be a liar and deceiver. And so they should be cast out until they repent and truly believe. There's no place for someone who does not trust in Jesus Christ. 
So therefore, the external-internal distinction is meaningless. There's only internal, which manifests itself outwardly. In other words, you trust in Christ and therefore are part of the people of God. Any questions about that point? Anything that was not, is not clear there? Okay, a second objection is that, and this just goes back to their traditional teaching, is that God established a principle that the sign and seal of the covenant of grace is given to the infant children of believers. And this principle, I meant to put principle rather than covenant, uh, this principle has never been revoked. And what is speaking of is circumcision. And so they're saying that when circumcision was established, God established this principle that the sign and seal of the covenant of grace is given to the infant children of believers. And we never see this revoked. But they're talking about circumcision, and this principle is not known apart from or outside of circumcision. And as we noted last time, circumcision is something which is explicitly revoked. Galatians 5, 1 and 2 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And this argument is one that you'll find often among Pado Baptists. And I think it's interesting because they are very convinced by it. They think that this is a very strong argument. And yet the idea is that circumcision establishes a principle. And so even when circumcision is gone, the principle still remains. But the problem with this is that we don't have this principle outside of circumcision. And so the truth is that when circumcision is revoked and wiped away, everything associated with it is gone as well. And it's, this is a, getting a bit into the weeds, but the point is just that they're saying that circumcision established something. Uh, this transcendent principle that is, uh, is true throughout all ages, that something should be given to children. And my point is that, no, it doesn't, because God revokes circumcision. And so when, when God revokes it, then therefore it's gone. <clears throat> and then the third objection that they make is that the unity of the covenant of grace entails the necessity of the covenant side being given to the infant children of believers. And that goes back to the, the question just a moment ago, that the idea that there is one covenant of grace from Adam onward, uh, fulfilled in Christ. And this is really not true that the covenant of unity of the covenant of grace entails the necessity of the covenant sign being given to the infant children of believers. In reality, the unity of the covenant of grace rests upon faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about there being one covenant of grace, what we're saying is that everyone trusts in Jesus Christ. Adam looked forward to Christ. He looked forward to the seed of the woman who was to crush the head of the serpent. Abraham looked forward to his seed in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
Moses looked forward to the prophet who is greater than him. David looked forward to his greater son who would be the one who would be the king who would reign forever. So the point is that everyone was trusting in Jesus Christ. And that is what the unity of the covenant of grace means. It doesn't mean that this time was given to infants then, and so therefore we have to do the same now. That's not where, where that unity comes from. Herman Vitius writes with incredible eloquence here. He says, if we view the substance of the covenant, it is but only one, nor is it possible that it should be otherwise. There is no other way worthy of God in which salvation can be bestowed on sinners, but that discovered in the gospel. But if we attend to the circumstances of the covenant, it was dispensed at sundry times and in diverse manners under various economies. He also notes that to all the elect living in any period of time, one in the same eternal life was promised. Jesus Christ was held forth as one in the same author and bestower of salvation. And they could not become partakers of it any way, but by a true and lively faith in him. So in other words, there is a unity to the covenant of grace. It is one in substance, but that unity rests upon Jesus and upon saving faith in him. That is what it is all about. And there's nothing whatsoever here about infant baptism. Credo Baptists would argue that the distinctions between us and the new covenant and those in previous ages would fall into those circumstances of the covenant, dispensed at sundry times in diverse manners. The point that I'm trying to make here is that one can have differing views on baptism while still holding to the unity of the covenant of grace. The unity of the covenant of grace does not entail infant baptism. Rather, it is a presupposition which can be shared among credo-baptists and pedo-baptists. The real question at hand under dispute between us is whether or not the given-to-infants part of circumcision continues to baptism. And that is really it. That is the core question. It's not over whether there is one covenant of grace, one unified people of God, or anything else along those lines. It's whether or not that given to infants part continues to baptism. And we would argue that it does not. Now, we've looked a lot at credo-baptism and pedo-baptism today and last week, and I don't want to get too lost in the details because this question is so long and rigorous. The reason why I am opposed to pedo-baptism is because, first of all, it is wrong and unbiblical. But secondly, I've seen how often it leads to presumption. It is the idea that, oh, my parents were part of the covenant, and therefore so am I. I remember when I was in college, I was talking with some friends about when we had become converted, when we had become saved. And one boy said, well, I was born under the covenant and I've never departed from it. And I remember thinking, that's not Christianity. That's presumption. 
And that was the error of the Pharisees that John the Baptist was calling out, that they felt like because they were children of Abraham, they were therefore God's people in every way. They believed that their salvation was assured because of who their parents were. And that is not the Christian faith. And of course, there's plenty of presumption in Baptist churches too. Don't get me wrong. But I think that this particular error leads to it directly. And the point is that it's not about who we are related to. It is about saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so I believe that the effects of pedo-baptism are greatly negative. Now, the main point about baptism, once again, is that which we see in Romans 6, 1 through 4. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The point here is that baptism symbolizes that we have been united to Jesus Christ. And thus all of the benefits of his great work, of his death, of his resurrection, are now ours. It is thus our tremendous blessing, privilege, and benefit. How then shall we live in light of the fact that we have been baptized? Well, we should live as those who have been united to Jesus Christ. That is our identity. That is what we are proclaiming has been done to us when we are baptized. We are claiming Christ's saving work for us. And so therefore, our lives should be marked as those who possess the cleansing power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection life of holiness and purity. Rather than presumption, the biblical teaching should lead us to thankfulness and to purity. All right, so we've got uh, just a couple of minutes. I hope I didn't get everyone hopelessly lost, but led you back to the gospel. But yes, ma'am. I, I missed last week. You might have covered it. But what message would you say that children of believers have if any? Because I think that's part of the common Right. Well, we, we of course recognize that they have the blessing of hearing the word of God, of having a godly example, of having the gospel preached to them every day and the lord does promise to bless his word and train up a child in the way in which they should go um but my point is that it's not simply a magical thing by virtue of your parents being christians um but of course it's it's something that is uh, the underscores the importance of teaching and the benefit of hearing the word day in and day out and having the gospel preached early so that, that would be really where I would, I would hone in on those blessings and benefits. Makes sense. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. I don't know if it's 
Like a baby dedication, uh, I think I think you could argue that there is a place for it. I'm not sure what the official stance of the church would be on baby dedication and that sort of thing. So I want to defer to the leadership on that. Uh, you know, we we do see this principle in the Old Testament, which I think is a, a better approach than than if a baptism of you shall dedicate your children to the Lord, and that's where that that Baptist practice comes from. And I would be more okay with something like that. Uh, and, and, you know, what you're describing. Uh, I, was, I was dedicated uh, as a baby, and so were my brothers. So in the Southern Baptist Church, same way. So, uh, uh, But again, yeah, I, I would want to defer to the, the leadership of the church in there. Their... Uh, no, yeah, good thoughts. Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, very good question. Yes, sir. And the importance is of the real question is whether this falls under the regulative principle. That can you find a, a biblical basis for it? And I, I, I think some have seen a biblical basis for it in the practice of dedic- you shall dedicate your children. Uh, so, but, um, but there are differences of interpretation on that. So, yeah, thank you very much. And I, I would also emphasize, you know, that to a great extent, we share much in common with our Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters in terms of the goal of uh, preaching the gospel to our children and as a church and a, a covenantal community united in seeking uh, the, the salvation of all of our children. Uh, and so in that sense, we share, uh, we share a lot. Um, but I do not think that the, the practice of infant baptism is biblical, as, as noted the, uh, for, for these reasons the past couple of weeks. All right, that does lead us to our end of time. I will close us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us such a great and glorious Savior, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him and that you have given us the glorious benefits of being united to him in his death 
and united to him in his resurrection. Lord, we do pray that you would be with us, that you would guide us as we seek to glorify you with our lives. And Lord, we do pray for every child here at Faith Baptist, that you would bring every single one of them to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and that they might hear the gospel early and come to faith in a very young age. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you very much.